about dopamine a lot in this episode, and I just have to say, speaking of dopamine, I'm riding a pretty sweet dopamine high from the godly key lime pie Rachel made today. <laughs> Thanks. I love baking. It's not something I do like a whole lot of, but this guy that Colin works with, his birthday's coming up, and they're they're doing like a, a really sweet make pies and have a little bake off for animal rescues. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet. I'll contribute to that. But I'm also an envious bitch. So I couldn't like, <laughs> I couldn't just bake one. I had to bake one for the thing and then one for me. Of course. Yeah. So Kelly and I have been snacking down. Yeah. And she made this amazing whipped cream with mascarpone in it. Holy balls. That shit was really good. You got to get on that cheese, put a little bit of honey in it. And it's kind of funny, whenever I was reading whipped cream recipes, which sounds ridiculous to say out loud, <laughs> um, they were like, who likes stiff whipped cream? Who likes whipped cream that's like butter? And I was like, me, bitch. Me? Yeah. What the hell? Uh, it's all about the, the aeration, Kelly. The light and flat. No. Sometimes I want it to be like an extra part of the pie. Right. I'm in the same boat. Oh, yeah. And something we were talking about right before recording that we wanted to mention is I mean we were just talking about how much we appreciate each other's friendship and how it's nice to have a friend who really just gets you and I made the comment that one of the things I really love about Rachel is that I can just make a really dark self-deprecating statement and she starts laughing because she understands that I'm trying to be funny (laughs) and when I'm in mixed company and I do the same thing I always get this response of oh, no, don't say that about yourself. (laughs) Like these really concerned expressions and grasping of pearls. And it's so infuriating anytime that happens because that means they think that you are capable of thinking that thing about yourself. (laughs) It's really frustrating because one, it gives the impression that they agree. (laughs) (laughs) No, Kelly, I really need you to feel good about this because you are a piece of shit. And also, then I have to do the awkward thing, like, oh, I was just joking. And they're like, if you say so. <laughs> they never believe you. <laughs> and then you you wake up one day in a straight jacket, just like, what happened? As I have said multiple times, I am a huge Simpsons nerd. And Rachel and I have a particular Simpsons quote that we say like 50 times a day. I know you know what it is. Well, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's annoying that I say it so frequently, and I'm sorry, but I say it so frequently. And one time I kept saying it because I was driving through heavy traffic in a different city with my friend, and I would just say it every time I missed a turn, which was (laughs) Every time you were an idiot. Yes. And they were just like, you really shouldn't say that about yourself, Kelly. Like, really concerned. And and you're like, bitch, I have two degrees. (laughs) I know I'm not an idiot. (laughs) And everyone's an idiot sometimes. Yes. And that's the thing. Like... I love self-deprecating humor because it's totally okay to admit to yourself and everyone else that you're not above reproach. That's what it is to me. Yeah, same. So so whenever someone's like, no, I think your farts are glitter. (laughs) I'm like, they're not though. (laughs) It would be pretty sweet if they were. God, I would be a glitter saint. (laughs) (laughs) There would just be, anytime the dudes at work are dicks, I will just crop dust the shit out of your cubes. So welcome back to Southern Hells. I'm Kelly. And I'm Rachel. And today we are talking about abusive relationships, different types, what they do to your brain and why people stay. Every time you read like an article about so-and-so was murdered after, you know, being in a relationship with a history of abuse or, you know, if someone outs their abusive ex-boyfriend, you always see in the comments, why didn't you leave? Why did she stay? And it's really infuriating because there are Literally, biological reasons why people don't leave abusive relationships. A case that I just remembered from high school, I didn't know that they were in an abusive relationship, but this girl that I went to high school with was married to her high school sweetheart. And after years and years and years of being together, they had twins for their first baby. Their first baby was babies. (laughs) And they were in some sort of argument and he threw something at her and she was holding one of the twins. Oh, God. And she, they were like not newborn, but not less than a year old. So she left him. And this friend's response was, 
He's been hitting her for years. I don't know why she wanted to leave now. Oh my God. And it was like, okay, I'm sure being pregnant, I can tell you like Colin and I keep having these conversations with each other where we're like, we got to cut this shit out. We're going to have a kid. Cause, oh, we'll like joking like their tantrums to yeah. each other. We're like, we got to set a fucking example now. <laughs> <laughs> so I could see someone being like, okay, well now we have twins and now I have to set an example for these kids and it being like a trigger to leave. Right. Well, that's another thing that um, we'll get into later. A huge symptom of abuse is that the victim feels like, oh, it's my fault. He's mad at me. I did something to make him mad. But a baby is innocent, and yeah, I think most people can understand, okay, this baby does not deserve this treatment, so... Yeah. It, it is officially you, it's not me. Yeah. I think the last time I stalked her on Facebook, she was doing pretty well, so there you That's go. That's good. So, for my first little bit of information, as per the norm, Kelly and I approach this from different angles. Something I'm really interested in is inequality in general, but... As a huge feminist, I try to stay balanced and I try to be like, okay, well, what are the things that affect men that disproportionately women aren't affected by or, or whatnot? So I was like, okay, well, what are the statistics for domestic violence against men? And it turns out whenever I looked up general domestic violence statistics from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, they mentioned men in all of them. It's not like they separated it out. It's not like they were like, so abuse is abuse. Yeah. I like that. I would be interested in seeing the different numbers, though. Oh, well, they, they did they did break them out by gender, but they put them together. So it was like, it wasn't like, here's the category for men, here's the category for women, if that makes sense. Like, I'll, I'll just, one in three women and one in four men have been victims of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner within their lifetime. Oh. See, they just mention it like, wow, one in three and one in four. Is it, that physical abuse? Is that what you said? Yeah, physical violence. Wow. And that, that's what blew my mind. I expected it to be disproportionately female. But, I mean, one in four is not that big a difference when compared to one in three. No, and that's reported cases, right? Exactly. Yeah. I would say men are much less likely to report uh, domestic violence than women because, I don't know, shame, embarrassment? I think it, it flies... I think it falls in the same category of the stuff that we talked about in toxic masculinity. Right. It's just... Men have a lot more image to lose. It's kind of ingrained in our culture. Like, it would be so emasculating, and masculinity is the the peak form. So, one in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence. Jeez. One in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked. That kind of blew my mind. I expected more men to be affected by that. Like, not... I knew it would be women more than anyone, but I expected, you know, one in 18 is compared to one in seven. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause you always hear about the, like the crazy bitch. Yeah. Or the, true. oh my God, my crazy eggs. Wow. So one in 18 men have been stalked. Oh, you know what? I should have read the rest of that quote. One in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner during their lifetime to the point they felt very, feel very fearful or believe that they or someone close to them would be harmed or killed. Wow. That's like a lot more specific. Because 1 in 18 for stalking, I imagine maybe a bunch of those dudes were like, yeah, I'm not scared of my five foot three, 110 pound ex. But stalking to the point where they are actually afraid. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, so what I was expecting to find is what I imagine most people would expect to find is that you would see a lot of help and information about how it affected women. And that wasn't the case. It was side by side. Here's the men and here's the women. They, they separated it by gender because of the disparities in the numbers. Another thing that I read, I could not for the life of me put a date on this. And actually, I was bitching to Kelly about it whenever we were doing our research earlier. And this information is from the Domestic Violence Coalition of Greater Chattanooga. Guidance for intervention, though 95% of reported cases of domestic violence involve that of males against females, it is not a gender issue and can occur as female to male or between the same sexes. For the sake of brevity, victims are referred to as women in these protocols. Domestic or family violence flourishes in an atmosphere of silence and isolation. So many victims will have great difficulty admitting that they have been injured by a family member and discussing this information. And this was like, it seemed... To be something that you would give to doctors to help them help domestic violence victims. Because it, it suggested 
um, where to put information about where to get help and so on in your office. But I thought that that was neat that they were like, hey, it's not a gendered issue, but it disproportionately affects women. So we're just going to call them women. Hmm. So the other bit of statistics that I have that are interesting, and oh my God, I'm the statistics one this time. This <laughs> never happens. I like when this happens. <laughs> Mark this day, baby. <laughs> Economic impact. And I actually got these statistics because they are very Kelly statistics. <laughs> I was like, Kelly, I'm going to get these, but they are you. The economic impact of domestic violence. Victims of intimate partner violence lose a total of 8 million days of paid work each year. Oh my god. And when you look at those statistics for how many people are affected, that's a lot. The cost of intimate partner violence exceeds $8.3 billion a year. Jesus. Between 21 to 60% of victims of intimate partner violence lose their jobs due to reasons stemming from the abuse. 21 to 60%. Between 2003 and 2008, 142 women were murdered in their workplace by their abuser. Oh my god. 78% of women killed in the workplace during this time frame. Wow, so most women who are killed in the workplace are killed by an abusive partner. Yep. Jesus. Murder is our workplace injury. That's horrible. I mean, going into this topic, we knew it was going to be like straight fucked up. But, whoa, okay, women who earn 65% or more of their household income are more likely to be psychologically abused than women who earn less. Wow, I wonder why that is. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, it could tie into toxic masculinity, it could be like a, an affront to someone's, you know, they're not the breadwinner, so... And that may even tie into, I don't want to get into the narcissistic topic yet i'm gonna do that later but i'm gonna put a pin <laughs> right here and hopefully remember to correlate that to narcissistic personality disorder later Ooh. between 2005 and 2006 130,000 stalking victims were asked to leave their jobs as a result of their victimization that is so horrifying that like someone is clearly i wonder if that's a result of them having to call in frequently or their partner actually i one of my retail jobs in college one of my coworkers who was uh, a married woman older than myself she her husband would call the store every single time she was working and demand to speak to her because he wanted to make sure she was at work he did this every time she was at work oh she was God. always at work what the fuck yeah that poor girl i know and ugh, it it always fucks me up because those people always act like it's a totally normal thing. Yeah. And if it was like Christmas time when we were really busy and she couldn't get to the phone immediately, he would hang up and call back. There was one day where I was the person answering the phone that day and he was getting really agitated with me. Like, I've called twice and I've left two messages and I haven't spoken to my wife yet. And I was like, well, we are very busy today, but I'll tell her again. And I was thinking like, don't suck me into the middle of this mess. But, yeah, you fucking asshole. Yeah. And even, okay, here's the thing that kills me. There are plenty of people who recover from infidelity in their relationships. Like, it's, there are tons of books about it. If you are one of those couples, don't make it my problem. Very well said, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's infuriating because if you can't reconcile and go back to a place of trust, then it's over. It's over, yeah. And if you don't trust them, if the only way you can maintain trust is to constantly require verification of their whereabouts then that's that's not sustainable in any healthy way no it isn't and if i don't know i just think there are healthier ways to set appropriate boundaries and expectations in the realm of transparency in your relationship like if you caught someone lying to you it would be totally reasonable to be like look we have to have an open phone policy because this. right i don't know i just i think it's weird when this happened to me and Rachel. We had a friend who had a romantic partner who was very jealous and we kind of got that impression. And one day we, Rachel sent a message to this friend that's like, hey, um, we're going to go out if you want to come out with me and Kelly and you can bring your lady. And he never responded and that's cool. And like eight months later. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't remember where this was going, but now I do. Eight months later, 
um, his girlfriend sent a message to Rachel that was like, he does not want to hang out and he will not be hanging out with you and Kelly ever again. Yeah. And I was like, I just screenshotted it and sent it to him. I was like, um, this happened. (laughs) Yeah. And it was clearly a case of she finally got her hands on his Facebook account and just saw a message from a girl and didn't look at the date or the context. And I don't know. I I thought that was pretty batshit insane. (laughs) Yeah. Colin and I have an open phone policy, but neither one of us takes advantage of it because neither one of us doesn't trust the other or give a shit. It's just a great reassurance. Right. We don't give a shit. (laughs) And that's one thing. It's one thing to have an open phone policy to where, like, if you wanted to look at Colin's phone, you could. It's another to be like, Colin, give me your phone. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I hate to say it, but I do think there's, like, a point in a relationship. And you would have to see it. It's the kind of thing that a a lady on our baby bumps, which I frequent, don't judge me. Um, She was like, hey, my husband started acting weird and doing all these things. And she had all of these totally rationalized reasons. And the chicks in this forum were like, yeah, he's cheating on you. And she was like, what? And then she looked into it the next day and then was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, he's cheating on me. And she figured it out by snooping through his phone, but by finally just demanding it. And then he was upset because he was like, "Uh, I was going to tell you about this on my own time. Yeah, that's not how this shit works, buddy. Yeah. How dare you ruin my timeline? It's like, how dare you cheat on your seven-month pregnant wife, you fucking idiot? Yeah. Speaking of abuse. (laughs) (laughs) You fucking stupid-ass idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Who does that? Like, something I wanted to talk about is different types of abuse and different types of abusers. Because here's the thing. Like, in movies and on TV, the abuser is always portrayed as this just obviously evil one-dimensional horrible person a pizza (laughs) like who's you know beating the fuck out of someone and saying you're a fat ugly whore and no one will ever love you those are obviously abusive acts but not all abuse looks like that and not all abusers look like that a lot of abusers are not even aware that they are abusers yeah i really want to delve into some lesser known types of abuse And one of those I'm really interested in hearing about is economic abuse. Which I didn't even know was a thing until we started researching this. I really didn't either. Oh, you want me to cover some economic abuse or you want to dive into? Do I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when compared to uh, Finn Dom, (laughs) it is not the same thing. Hmm. So, economic abuse... When an abuser takes control, oh yeah, this definition is from, again, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. When an abuser takes control of or limits access to shared or individual accounts or assets or limits the current or future earning potential of the victim as a strategy of power and control, this is economic abuse. Oh, that's like that recent news story where this girl uh, was afraid her boyfriend would leave her when he got offered a very prestigious music scholarship. So she responded to the email for him and turned down the scholarship. And luckily for him, he went on to be very successful and just so happened to begin working under the very mentor who he would have worked with under the scholarship. And the mentor was like, why did you turn all that money down? And so, yeah. Had they broken up like since Yes. Then? Oh my God. I hope he sued her for whatever that was worth. He he did sue the living shit out of her. However, she moved back to her home country and will probably never face any real consequences. <gasps> but at least he's cleared his name, you know? Yeah, that's true. And like, I, <laughs> everyone will now know that he was the rightful winner. Yeah. Oh, that's disgusting. But yeah, so I guess that would definitely count as economic abuse. Yeah, it would. I... In economic abuse, the abuser separates the victim from their own resources, rights, and choices, isolating the victim financially and creating a forced dependency for the victim and other family members. Their definition goes on to read, Victims of domestic violence may be unable to leave an abusive partner or may be forced to return to an abusive partner for economic reasons. Victims of coerced debt may face massive barriers to economic self-sufficiency, including struggling to find a job or even obtaining a place to live. Um, thanks to the the detrimental effects of their personal credit scores. That's something that you wouldn't even think about. Someone yeah. forcing you to go into debt with them. Or if you, like in mine and Colin's case, 
He knows where my social security card is. He knows where my license is. He could easily take out debt in my name. He wouldn't because he's not a piece of shit. Yeah. But if he weren't, so that it's just so crazy that we have these shackles that are so easy to put on people. And this is something I know from browsing the relationships subreddit. People are really, really not likely to report identity fraud against their loved ones. I even see parents taking out mass amounts of debt under their children's name. And then the child is like, well, I don't want to send my mom and dad to jail. So I guess I'll just be in debt forever. God, that breaks my heart. Economic abuses. There has to be something done on a regulatory level about that. It's just too common a problem. Yeah. Like there's no reason that your parents should be able to take out $100,000 loans against your 10-year-old person. For real. People do that against like their preschool age children. Yeah, there's just no I can't I can literally not think of a single reasonable reason. I can't either. And even some very well-meaning people do that to build up their child's credit score so they have, you know, a glowing credit score when they come out of high school. But that's kind of fucked up, too, because it's not their credit score. It's your credit score. That's true. And I was actually thinking of a friend that I have that his mom did that. She was a banker. And he was like, yeah, I came out of high school with like an 800 credit score. And it was like, I came out of it poor as shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't I don't even like that. I don't know. Because it's bullshit. Yeah, it is. Oh, you fucking hate it here. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try not to drop a ton of anecdotes this entire episode, but that reminds me of another story I read on Reddit. So this woman was in her 50s and had been married to the same man her entire life. They had grown children together. He was a business owner or well-employed or something. He was the breadwinner. She had never worked a day in her life, basically. So uh, one day she realizes that he has secretly been unemployed for months, has drained all of their retirement money and all of their savings to keep up the facade of being employed for months, and their house is getting foreclosed. Oh my god. So she has no money, no work skills, she wants to leave her husband. What does she do? Oh god. Yeah. Started from the bottom, now we're back at the bottom. Yeah. I don't know if that would count as economic abuse, but I want to say it. I don't, if you put another human in such an economic bind because of your own stupidity, that should count as abuse. There's a lot of things in reading about abuse where, I'll go into some specific examples later, where it was kind of in a, in a hinky area for me. Yeah, a, a lot of these things are, and a lot of these things, like, I think everyone experiences or even does to a very light degree at some point you know no one is completely level-headed and rational 100% of the time but yeah I I guess there is a line in the sand where it becomes officially abuse probably cumulative like True. you could accidentally <laughs> I could accidentally gaslight the shit out of Colin <laughs> one day over something and then it'd be like if he points it out to me I'll be like I'm, I'm really sorry I didn't mean to to do that or the same for him he could do that to me yeah. And it's not necessarily abusive. It was maybe maybe in that moment he was genuinely arguing the perspective that he believed to be real. But it was at the cost of what I felt to be real. Right. So if it were a consistent pattern of behavior, then it'd be like, motherfucker, you need to figure it out. And I think maybe that's... Yeah, I think consistency and like, yeah, it being a pattern is when it becomes abusive. Unless... I would say one punch to the face is abuse. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Drawing the line in the sand at throat punches. <laughs> but in the case of that guy, like, he's intentionally deceiving her. He's True. maintaining the power dynamic. He could have come forward and been honest with her. So, man, I guess that's like that abusers don't necessarily know they're being abusive all right. the time. So, yeah, I think that was pretty abusive on his part. Yeah, I think we're going to spend the bulk of this episode on different types of emotional abuse because I, speaking from personal experience, I a lot of women don't realize when they're being abused until sometimes after the relationship has ended and they can look back on it with a clear head. And as we previously said, I, a lot of partners don't realize that their behavior is abusive. So I'm hoping by talking about some of these lesser known abuse types. So emotional abuse is just inherently 
harder to recognize than physical abuse because, you know, when there's physical abuse, you're getting pushed or hit or having things thrown at you. There is a clear distinction there. Emotional abuse is a lot more subtle. And in, I would say, most cases, if not all, the victim blames themselves. Especially if you're like us, you tend to be a rational, level-headed woman and you take pride in the fact that you have a relative amount of control of your emotions. So the idea that someone could be manipulating you with your emotions, like you're constantly rationalizing them. It's not like a knee-jerk thing. No, it's not. And that rationalization can actually lead to uh, propagating the abuse cycle, which I might talk about a little because it is pretty fascinating. But I do want to make the point that abuse often starts out very innocuous, just a white lie here or something weird being said there. And over time, it becomes more and more prominent as the abuser grows more and more confident that you're not going to leave them. And it's hard to see red flags in rosy glasses. Exactly. What's the quote? When you're wearing rose-colored glasses, red flags just look like flags. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's obviously uh, the direct verbal abuse that includes threats, judging, criticizing, lying, blaming, name-calling, raging, uh, giving orders. Those are easy to recognize. Some that are less common... I'm just going to run down this list, and I got this from Psychology Today. It's called Forms of Emotional and Verbal Abuse You May Be Overlooking. So one is opposing. The abuser will argue against anything you say to challenge your perceptions, opinions, and thoughts. They don't listen or volunteer thoughts or feelings, but they treat you as an adversary, just saying no to everything. Weird. Yeah, and another is blocking. This is another tactic that's used to abort conversation. The abuser will switch topics, accuse you, use words that in effect say shut up. So shutting down a conversation, just, yeah, putting up a wall. Man, I I had never thought of that. I I haven't experienced any of these fortuitously. Yeah, I haven't experienced these particular ones either. Um, This one is discounting and belittling. This is a type of verbal abuse that minimizes or trivializes your feelings, thoughts, or experiences. It's a way of saying your feelings are wrong. I've had that. Really? And that's some bullshit. And some of the strategies that people use to belittle your emotions are... Like right now I'm pregger, so people are like, oh, pregger emotions. Oh, God. And I'm like, motherfucker, I would have been angry with you about this thing before. Any day of the week, this would have been upsetting. Yeah. And the fact that I am not screaming my face off at you right now should let you know that this is a rationalized situation yeah i have experienced that in a workplace environment too assholes must be your period (laughs) must be that you're an idiot (laughs) period (laughs) damn periods uh the next one is undermining and interrupting these words are meant to undermine your self-esteem and confidence such as you don't know what you're talking about Finishing your sentences for you or speaking on your behalf without your permission. I have kind of experienced that too where someone's been like, trust me, I know you better than you know yourself. Oh. Yeah. And the last one on this list, denying. An abuser may deny that agreements or promises were made or that a conversation or other events took place, including prior abuse. The abuser instead may express express affection, or make declarations of love and caring. This is crazy-making and manipulative behavior, which leads you to gradually doubt your own memory, perceptions, and experience. In the extreme, a persistent pattern is called gaslighting. Gaslighting. Yeah, that's a big one. And I have experienced that too. And a very specific example is that, okay, I, I pulled up a web browser, and something was on that web browser, like some evidence of some betrayal, okay? So... I confronted the person with this and their immediate response was, you always jump to the worst conclusions. You know that I've had house guests. And (laughs) and I was like, I know your fucking username, bro. This is you. And they were immediately just like, well, I have to lie because you get so mad and da 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 da. Oh yeah. It's my fault. You're an idiot. Right. So yeah, that I would say is gaslighting. Because their immediate response was to make me feel crazy. You always jump to the worst conclusions when I was fucking right. And there was physical evidence that I was right. Yeah, and it's not like you went out of your way to find it. You opened the internet. Yes. 
on their I, computers. I was instructed to open the internet and do blank, blank, blank. I couldn't help what was on the screen when I pulled it up. That sounds like bullshit. That is the God honest truth. I, I'm not going to gaslight you. <laughs> what if this podcast just becomes me gaslighting you? <laughs> I'm just like, I don't think it happened like that, Kelly. <laughs> My perception of reality is so skewed. <laughs> I actually have a male uh, friend that I'm not going to name who was describing a relationship that he had to me. And he was like, yeah, this ex has everyone convinced that I was just the biggest asshole. And I know that you're experience with a person and someone else's experience with a person can be two different things but for the record this was um someone i had been romantic with so you know i had i had that perspective too right and i was like dude you were getting gaslighted oh god and i tried to explain it to him and and he was it was just like this slow realization of oh holy shit i was like you were in an emotionally abusive he didn't have the words or it reminds me of our toxic masculinity episode because men are less educated in their emotions and they're less educated um about abuse overall because it's you know culturally perceived to be a feminine problem right yeah so he didn't know he didn't have the words to explain why he just thought he was like she's just a bitch shrug and it was like you were together for a really long time you were an abuse victim. And he was like, mm. like that was <laughs> the man response to. It, it was funny because I can like sense under the surface that it's a somewhat traumatic thing, mm -hmm. but they don't really dive into it. Yeah. And she possibly could not have even realized that her behavior was abusive. That's why I think it's really important to identify these behaviors as abusive because there have been times where I've read something and I thought, oh my God, I've done that. I've behaved in that way before. Yeah. And you don't realize. Yeah. I've been in that boat too. Yeah. Those are some of the lesser known types of abuse, but there's different types of personalities that make one more likely to be an abusive partner, like borderline personality disorder, um, narcissistic personality disorder, and... I don't know if it's a personality disorder per se, but people who fall under the codependency umbrella. So I want to talk for a while about narcissism because when I got out of an abusive relationship and I started reading about narcissism, it was like the biggest holy shit light bulb moment. So I, I never want anyone to ever experience the hell that I experienced. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about, uh, narcissistic relationship cycles and how, how to recognize them. So first of all, I want to clarify what is a narcissist because I did this before I started researching too. I just correlated narcissist with sociopath. It's the same thing. They're actually quite different. And there's nine ways or there's nine traits that classify narcissistic personality disorder and someone must exhibit five of these to be classified. I don't know if I'm going to read all nine but I will read a couple that really resonated with me that are very easily recognizable. So um, before I start, this information can be found on Psychology Today. It's called, What's the Difference Between a Sociopath and a Narcissist? Ooh. So yeah, here's a few signs of a narcissist. They have a grandiose sense of self-importance and exaggerate achievements and talents. They require excessive admiration. This is a big one believes he or she is special and unique and can be understood only by or should associate only with other special or high-status people. And then another, envies others or believes they're envious of him or her. Man. And when I read that, I thought, holy shit, because this person that I knew, whenever someone didn't like them for any reason, instead of saying, that person doesn't like me. I wonder why. They would immediately say, that person is intimidated by me. Oh my god. No, they're fucking not. Because, no, they're fucking not. And yeah, there was a specific example where they had been at a party and this person just actively avoided them, did not want to talk to them. And their interpretation of that was, he's terrified by my presence. Oh my god. Or he doesn't like you because you're a fucking asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Who thinks... How exhausting all of this, how exhausting would that be? Yeah, I, I don't know. But a narcissist is not automatically an abuser. There are narcissists who aren't abusive. 
narcissists who exhibit most of the traits that you can read online, they are considered a quote-unquote malignant narcissist. And these, these are the people who become abusers. So how do a narcissist and sociopath differ? Well, what they have in common is that they can both be very charismatic, charming, and successful. They share exaggerated positive self-images and a sense of entitlement. And when they are abusive, they believe they're justified and deny responsibility for their abusive behaviors. They also lack insight. The distinguishing traits between a a narcissist and a sociopath, these are really interesting. Sociopaths do qualify as narcissists, but not all narcissists are sociopaths because what drives them differs. The main distinction is that sociopaths are more cunning and more manipulative because their ego is not at stake. So to a narcissist, ego is everything. They need admiration. A sociopath doesn't really need admiration. Whatever means they have to manipulate to get what they want is fine. If it makes them look bad in the process, they don't really give a shit. But a narcissist has to look good. This is fascinating. Right? Yeah, and narcissists work hard to achieve success, fame, perfection, admiration, whereas a sociopath will probably just try to swindle it because it's easier. Like Dahmer? Yeah. Was yeah. Dahmer an actual? So he had to be. Never mind. I, I would say all the serial killers are. <laughs> I'm like, did they kill people with empathy? I don't know. <laughs> and although both types may be motivated to win at all costs, Narcissists are more interested in what you think of them. So I guess they're more likely to play by the rules. So they have shitty empathy skills, but are invested in what you think. But they're so deluded that what you think is made up to them anyway. Right. Okay. So something that really helped me get over a narcissistic relationship cycle. There's a website. It's called narcsite.com, I think. And it's maintained by an openly narcissistic gentleman and he keeps this blog as part of his therapy and he's incredibly open with like what being a narcissist entails and how he feels about the women he dates and it was a huge eye-opener this is my last article on narcissism i promise but it was from dude i you could read 10 more and i would just be sitting here like this whole time i know that you guys can't see my face but i'm just like on the edge of my seat like go on yeah and i I don't want to be too hard on any potential narcissist listening. I am just talking about this specifically because this is what I've survived. And I do use that word survivor. If you come out of this bullshit in one piece, you are a survivor. And I just hope that anyone who is in this cycle can get out of it. And I'm going to talk about codependency and my experience there. So we'll be in the... We actually joked last time about doing a... um, the southern hell's mental illness <laughs> episode where it's just me and kelly explaining our personal neuroses i'll talk about you know adhd and what it really means and kelly was like i have so much to talk about on anxiety we can go for days <laughs> this hits pretty close to home for me and information was vital in me getting over this i'm a research junkie i'm an information and data junkie and having like hard, cold information on what this is helped me so much. Kelly Poe, the data-driven life. (laughs) So um, this article I'm going to focus on for a while is from S-Teamology. It's called The Three Phases of a Narcissistic Relationship Cycle, Over-Evaluation, Devaluation, and Discard. I'm going to substitute over-evaluation with idealization because that's what it's called in most other um, publications. Hmm. Yeah, something that really does distinguish a narcissist from a sociopath is that narcissists need people. Their entire sense of self-esteem and self-worth is dependent on the admiration of others. They're also self-absorbed and pretty much oblivious to the wants and needs of others. They enter into relationships in an attempt to feel a void and to make sure that they have someone who is always available for sex, an ego stroke, or whatever need they may have. And a relationship with a narcissist follows these three phases. The first is the idealization phase. And if you are stuck in this cycle, remember this. Narcissists are very careful when choosing a target. Typically, they choose a victim based on status. This victim must be attractive, popular, rich, or extremely gifted. The greater the status, the higher the value the narcissist places on their supply. Whoa. So you were targeted. And this is why, this brings me back to your point, like women over who make over $65,000 a year are more likely to be abused in this way. Maybe they're more likely to be targeted. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, that's another reason when people say things like, she's so pretty, she's so smart, she has everything going for her. Why is she with this asshole? She was targeted. Yeah. Or in my case, anyone that works with Colin closely is like, man, Colin's so nice. We love Colin. Anyone who has to deal with Colin thinks he is the biggest fucking twat. (laughs) But he's actually super, super sweet and like a big heart teddy bear person. But it's so funny how many people are completely oblivious to that. That's funny. So that's been a thing in our relationship. People are like, wait, you're with who? (laughs) (laughs) So the first phase is the idealization phase. This is when the narcissist has chosen their target and they want that target. Okay, and so they do this thing called love bombing. They shower this target with affection and praise, and they put on this facade of being everything that that target ever wanted in a romantic partner. It's like they place their target on a pedestal and worship them, and the target's just like, wow, this person is so great to me. I can't believe they like me. I can't believe they're single. I have found my soulmate. I'm so happy. What this kind of fosters is a one-way attachment. There's an imbalance. So during this love bombing phase, the target, they grow to love the narcissist because of all this affection and praise and this person just acting like the most amazing person ever. And the narcissist loves how much the target loves them. So it's not like totally selfless for them to do this idealization phase because they get to see this person like so excited about them. And didn't, don't you have notes on the biochemical effects of that? Yes, I do. I'm going to get into that probably at the very end. Oh. Next comes the devaluation stage. This can happen after a few months. It can happen after a few years. It usually starts to happen after a few months, but this is when the mask starts to slip. Yeah, so seemingly overnight in some cases, the attention and the affection that your partner used to lavish on you, it's suddenly gone. They may stop responding to phone calls. They may just do something really callous and cold, or um, you catch them in some sort of betrayal. Anyway, they go from being like this perfect partner to something happening, and it seems really out of character. And so you think, I've done something wrong, because this isn't my partner, but what you don't realize is that that is your partner, that everything up to that point has been a facade. This is new to me today, but what this stage means is that the narcissist is getting bored. They get bored easily, and the high that they were feeding off from the idealization phase is wearing off. They're not getting the same sort of supply, so they're getting bored, and they're separating themselves, and that's really confusing to the victim. So yeah, the idealization, I mean, the devaluation phase, the narcissist mass is starting to slip. They're starting to grow distant. The victim is very confused and just wants everyone to be happy again and is, you know, trying to please their partner, but nothing's working. They're probably trying to get back to what they thought was normal. Exactly. That's what's happening. So the last phase, the discard phase. This is when the narcissist just pulls away. Yeah, they might ghost you or say it's not working. You break up. And the victim is left to pick up the pieces and they're very confused and In a lot of cases, yeah, after this discarding phase, um, there's little to no contact, like they won't return your calls or they don't want to see you. So the victim gets desperate and gets really clingy and starts reaching out. And what they don't know, I'll get into this later, they are actually feeling withdrawals for that partner. So they're desperate to get that partner back and they'll do anything. And so that has the pretty shitty effect of giving the narcissist more supply. And then the cycle kind of continues. This is like the heroin addict of relationships. It is. It is like being addicted to heroin on a biological level, which brings me to my next point. (laughs) (laughs) That was my narcissism info dump, but I think it's important to recognize that cycle because once you recognize that cycle, you can stop the cycle. And the way to stop the cycle is going no contact. And you have to understand that those first mm, two weeks are going to be really fucking shitty. But... Every day gets easier. I kind of just like getting off of narcotics, I guess. Yeah, your biochemistry has to level itself back out because it's kind of like, you know how they talk about when you open Facebook and you see a notification, you get a little bump of... Yes. It's like that, but way more serious because you also have the oxytocin and... Right. There is actually a biological phenomenon that happens when someone becomes addicted to their abuser and that is called trauma bonding. And you're actually addicted to the hormonal roller coaster that an abusive relationship causes. 
It works exactly like an addictive drug works, mainly through the stress hormone cortisol and dopamine, which is the reward response in your brain. Yeah, so dopamine, like I just said, it's a baseline pleasure response. You may feel it when you eat something that tastes really good or when you win a game of poker. Even when you like lay down in bed after a really long day, it's a reward response and it makes you feel happy, but it also has the effect of kind of training you to repeat behaviors. It's how people get addicted to gambling or addicted to food or addicted to whatever they're addicted to. So it can happen with abusive relationships because um, let's say your partner hurts you in some way, you feel psychological or even physical pain your body produces cortisol and you feel really, really low. And then they bring your bouquet of roses and say, I'm sorry, you're my everything, I love you. I want to have your babies. Yes, and then you get a surge of dopamine and it's a really high, high. You get this dopamine surge and it feels amazing and you're so happy and your brain becomes trained to associate this elation with this partner. Oh, so that's when, dark. When you're at your lowest, you want that partner because you associate that happy feeling with that person, even though that's the person that is causing the low feelings. That is depressing as fuck. Yeah, and it ha- it happens on a chemical level. So whenever you hear someone say, why doesn't she leave or why does he stay with her? Their brain is broken. And the only real cure is complete separation. Reset that shit. Yeah, which sometimes is impossible if you have a kid together or... Oh, yeah. But luckily for me, it was a matter of going no contact for a couple of weeks. It (laughs) It only took a couple of weeks for me to be like, holy shit, I am so glad I have a clear head now. That was some crazy shit. And when I was going through this cycle, I remember telling Rachel, I feel insane. And I remember when you told me you were going no contact that I, I literally said this and I remember it. I was like, it, I feel like you're like my junkie friend who is telling me they're throwing away their needles. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, it is exactly like that. And it really sucks, but you will be amazed at how fast it gets better. Yeah. And I mean, that's got to be reassuring for some people. You think it's never going to end, but it will. Exactly. It's going to suck absolute ass until it doesn't, but you know, that's life. And Okay, I promise this is the last list I'm going to read. but <laughs> And I'm going to read all of these because I think it's important. But these are the signs of trauma bonding. And I got this from an article called, from Business Insider. What? I don't know. By Lindsay Dodgson. It's called, people often stay in abusive relationships because of something called trauma bonding. Here are the signs it's happening to you. And here are the signs of trauma bonding. So number one, a constant pattern of non-performance. Your partner promises you things but keeps behaving to the contrary. In my case, they would promise something and then change their mind and then promise the same thing and then change their mind. Repeatedly. Number two. (laughs) (laughs) Others are disturbed by something that is said or done to you in your relationship, but you brush it off. We've all probably done that to some extent. I know. I was literally just thinking, I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. Number three. It's it's like anything. It's a spectrum. It's a variant. Exactly. You feel stuck in your relationship and see no way out. Yeah. I want to leave, but I can't, basically. Hmm. Number four, you keep having the same fights with your partner that go around in circles with no real winner. Number five, you're punished or given the silent treatment by your partner when you say or do something quote unquote wrong. Here's a big one. The silent treatment is abuse. It is a lesser recognized type of abuse. I wish I would have mentioned it sooner. But it's called stonewalling. Yes, that is abuse. If Yeah, because you're exerting some imaginary control in the situation. Right. So next, you feel unable to detach from your relationship even though you don't trust or even like the person you're in it with. And lastly, when you try to leave, you are plagued with such longing to get back with your partner, you feel it might destroy you. Those are withdrawals. That is part of the process. Make it through the DTs. That's what your takeaway needs to be. (laughs) Make it through what? The DTs. The the detox. Yeah. So there you go. Trauma bonding. Trauma bonding. Sucks for you. Sucks for me. (laughs) And the only cure for trauma bonding is separation. You have to go no contact. It is exactly like going cold turkey. 
And I always feel bad for people who are going through breakups because you go through like this self-loathing and then mourning phase at the same time. Yeah. And then you have to rebuild all of your routines because once you have all your routines around a person, it's like, oh, I get up. Even if you're, you know, just casually dating, I get up and I text this person. And then now you don't have anyone to text. Yeah, that's true. Or I make plans with this person. Or whenever you have that really exciting news at work, you're like, man, I can't wait to tell. And you have to, you will fucking build new relationships. That's how life works. For every long-term relationship that you create, you lose, what is it, like three friends? Isn't that how that? Wow, really? So there's like a statistic for it. Like Damn. for every relationship you, because it, it you fill these voids. You don't really. Yeah, it takes up so much of your time. Yeah. So it's just one of those things that there's always going to be something that you choose to spend your time on. It's just getting out of your old routines. It takes time. It does. But the last thing I wanted to talk about is something Kelly brought up because it was totally relevant to me. Um, Codependency. Yes. If you were the child of an alcoholic parent, like moi, (laughs) (laughs) the, the likelihood that you will come away with codependency is pretty serious. There are... Books that aren't about codependency that are specifically targeted to um, adult children of alcoholics. And if you read them, they're about codependency, just in a roundabout way. Or a lot of the things that they talk about. So codependency is basically where you are just inherently attracted to damaged people. You don't realize it. It's not something that you're, you know, in a crowd and you're like, that dude looks like a fucking (laughs) fixer-upper. It's not like that. And it's also hallmarked by being a serial monogamist, just going from long-term relationship to long-term relationship with no real fulfillment, and you can't really place it. You want to fix people, and as you fix people, you stay broken. So Hmm. it's really weird. I'm on the far end of the ADHD spectrum. (laughs) I'm not on the far end of codependency. Like, I've never had a partner that just wholesale my life revolved around them and that's what some people with codependency can be like like they're every waking moment is well what is going on with this person what do I need to be doing for them where what are they doing that's like the extreme end on my end I was more or less just going from relationship to relationship fixing people and then wondering why eventually I would just my interest would teeter out or the relationship just wouldn't be fulfilling and I couldn't put my finger on it and Once I read a book about codependency, it was so fucking mind-blowing because I was like, all these shitty relationships tied to the fact that I was raised by a goddamn alcoholic. Wow. And it's, like, growing up, I can remember dad passing out in his recliner and me being like, you have to go to bed. And, you know, like, me putting him to bed night after night after night as a kid. You can't come away from that without, like, a certain amount of a nurturing personality that you're going to carry into adulthood and you're going to think that's what you need to be doing. So you need to be taking care of people. Um, No, you don't. People need to take care of themselves and you need to recognize that you are not responsible for anyone else's happiness, well-being, or emotions. You're just not. They are the problem of the person experiencing them. So once you like back away from this feeling of responsibility for how other people felt that you didn't even realize you had... Oh my god. I have to say, um, I can cut this if you want me to, but I have a memory of Rachel. You were in a relationship that you weren't happy in and you wanted to leave. You literally said, I don't want to leave until I make sure that he's in therapy. I do. You can, you don't have to cut that. Yeah. No, that's, that's what it was. I was so worried that this person was so broken and they trusted me so much that I was the person that could get them to finally take care of themselves. And they were in their 30s. They needed to be taking care of themselves well before I arrived. But I was like, look, he's so close. I will leave after he just gets his ass taken care And I left. That's how that ended. And it was amazeballs. <laughs> Recognizing that you're not responsible for other people. Holy shit. And if you read, it's kind of cool. Once you read about codependency, you'll go to like forums. Like I, I see it all the time in baby bumps. People are like, yeah, my boyfriend does all of these horrible things and I spend all of this energy trying to make him better. And uh, and I always comment like, codependency, read this book. I could like seriously just format this and copy and paste it. I say it so much. Wow. You could just spot him in a crowd. It's uncanny and it's common. But anyway, 
my point is, uh, people with codependency issues are drawn to narcissists and narcissists are drawn to people with codependency issues because they know that person is always going to try and take care of them first. Oh yeah. And that person, yeah, they're going to focus on that individual, which is a pretty steady supply. Yep. To the detriment of themselves. Yeah. And they're not even going to realize that it's detrimental to themselves because they're just, that's just who you are. You're the, I take care of people. Why would I Oh my god, the liberation. I'm happy I was not on the extreme end of that spectrum because it, some of the stories that you read are like this okay, in the book Codependent No More, which is really good if you identify with anything that I just said or Google codependency and then are like, "Oh, okay, I see." Anyway, Codependent No More, she talks about this husband and wife where the wife was you know, distraught because her husband was an alcoholic and finally he went to rehab. He got better. He, you know, had a steady job and then she was still miserable and still focusing on like little nitpicky things that she could still like try and fix in him. Mm. She can figure out why she wasn't happy. It's like, because you're not focusing on improving yourself or spending energy on things that would benefit you, which would be mutually beneficial for your coupledom. You're focusing on fixing someone else. And this is a horrible bastardization of the concept. I seriously think you should all Google it. No, that's really enlightening. Yeah. I don't think I personally suffer from codependency, so I am really interested to hear the signs. It made me, seriously, when I read about it, I was kind of pissed because I was like, (laughs) I fucking wasted my 20s. That's how I felt when I read about narcissistic personality disorder. I was like, you mean this is a fucking thing? (laughs) This is is its own thing? (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, so that's, I guess if you're wondering what the other side of being on abusive relationships (laughs) is, the answer is, what the fuck? Yeah. That's where we're at. (laughs) But... On the other side of codependency is literally this, like, liberating, you mean I don't have to feel responsible for every time other people are mad at me because they are unreasonable? God, I bet that is a load off. Oh, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say little bits of it will creep back in every now and then I'll be, like, overly concerned with it. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Magic pill. (laughs) That's awesome. So good. So what are some lesser known types of abuse that we may have missed or that maybe you've experienced and you want to talk about? Let us know, southernhells at gmail.com. Yeah, and I wanted to go into something, but maybe it's a conversation you guys want to have with us. Um, we're open on Facebook. Maybe I'll put something on Twitter. I read this article about emotional abuse in men because what I was thinking is, again, you know, oh, this is a disproportionately female affected, so... And then in my reading, it seemed like there are resources available for men, not quite on the same scale that they are for women. Like there aren't halfway houses for male domestic violence victims in Chattanooga. Hmm. You could go through the Chattanooga Housing Authority as a domestic violence victim and work something out. But anyway, um, how do you think this article that I read, it called a lot of things abuse that I didn't actually think always qualified as abuse like they were very withholding affection like this article to me i'm not gonna name the article i thought about it but it's it's the story of a man whose girlfriend stops sleeping with him eventually and stops and it reads to me like they have underlying relationship issues that's usually the case yeah yeah and it's it's a reactionary thing on her part she stopped sleeping with him because they have relationship issues it does also read like she is a huge bitch (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's a where you draw the line type of thing. Yeah. Hmm. So anyway, if you want to talk to us about examples of your male friends that you think were in abusive relationships that they didn't recognize or... Oh, I would be really interested in hearing those stories. Yeah, just let us know. In the vein of listener emails, we're actually looking at doing an episode about coming out in the South because we have a ton of gay friends from Marion County. And I was thinking, man, I would love to know more of those stories because every story that I've heard has been really interesting. So if you want to email us any of those stories, we're probably going to do a listener email episode. Yeah, so if you have a story about coming out in a small town or actually any story you want to tell about being a weird person in the South, 
uh, we'd love to hear it. And we do want to do a listener story episode very soon. Yeah, because we've been working on our interview setup again. And we're just not there yet. But we do want to hear from you guys. So <laughs> southernhells at gmail.com. Like yeah, Kelly talk said. to us. Any feedback, any questions, any stories, we are always excited to read them. Yeah, and if you like us, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next Thursday.